1: Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests, movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music and wider society. <laughs> Jane Birkin went from a strict all-girls boarding school on the Isle of Wight to the streets of Paris, becoming the muse that defined a generation with her gamine figure and big doe eyes and inspired the world's most exclusive handbag. While she's never shied away from the muse label, she has nonetheless found her own personal path, be it behind a mic, or on the big screen. Her latest album, Oh, Pardon, Tu Dormes, is her most revealing yet, as she minds her life. And now there's a chance to hear it in person, as she prepares to perform at the Barbican. We caught up earlier, and I began by asking her how she was feeling about the upcoming show.
2: I don't really know, because I, I don't think it was put off or anything. It was I've done the... I've, I've done it about three times here, so it's, it's lovely coming back. I mean, it's a sort of... Um, it 's one of the nicest venues one can do is the Barbican, so it 's lovely i did I did the uh, symphonic orchestra one here last time. It must have been about three four years ago, and then anyhow, everything stopped for a couple of years and and i didn't go on with the symphonic uh, Concerts anymore. I did this new concert, which has so, had been done by Etienne Dao and I've been doing that for the last
1: two years, something like that, two and a half years. Do you still um, do you still love performing? What is it about performing that you enjoy? It's just
2: very thrilling. Before you go on, I was in um, Lille yesterday, and you, you can sort of hear people uh, a sort of lovely buzz of people. Talking just before you go on, and and they see the musicians and they start to clap and they start to. Even if you're tired, even if you're completely whacked, it it doesn't matter. You suddenly have the energy and the, the fun to be there and grateful that they made all the all the effort to come and see you, and especially with in difficult times. So I did uh, uh, Antwerp two days ago, and then Brussels, and then Lille yesterday. So it's It's the exciting time is just before you go on and uh and then you just hope to get through the really beautiful songs without having a frog in your throat and that and and with colds and things that are wandering round these days then you just you you can't really clear your throat to sing Fear the bonheur but I, as long as I get past the three songs for Melody Nelson, then I know I'm fine because then there's another three or four that everyone remembers. So, so they that, can they, do some of the work. <laughs> they can they can indeed do some of the yeah. work. So that's good fun when they rediscover things that they haven't heard in a long time. And all that was really conceived by Etienne Dao. Yeah. And then a lot of the last records on it as well. But really the three songs from Melody Nelson, I can, I can tell that people are waiting for them. And directly I say, what's your name? Melody, Melody, what? Melody Nelson. People start screaming. So it's a... I didn't think that I would be able to do it because I didn't think I had any legitimate um, uh, place in it. And then Etienne said, but you are, Melody Nelson. And I said, oh, I suppose I was on the cover. Yes. And she said, so said, no, well, you actually said you are. <laughs> you are." So I felt that I had a little bit of legitimacy, but it was it was worrying to get anything wrong because that really people know off by heart. Yes. They even though. Um, practically the way Serge said it, so you have to be jolly careful.
1: Tell me a little bit about the album, because, um, uh, oh, Pardon to Dormez is your 14th, mm. unbelievably. That's a lot of albums for a start. Uh, but I have read a, a few reviews of it, and having listened to it, um, my French is very bad, though. Um, it, it does seem to be incredibly... Uh, Yes, yeah, self-exposing in a way. I mean, it's, it, it seems to have all these wonderful strands of kind of maturity, nostalgia, but not wistfulness. It's it's a really, um, yeah, it's a very sort of engaging album. Oh, thank you. But he didn't want me to be wistful. And
2: uh, and I'd, I could have easily, if I was doing the record on my... I did one before, which I rather like, called Winter's Children which was really about my brother, sister and me being children and the nostalgia of childhood. And he said, you know, this time I don't want nostalgia. I don't want that sort of sad uh, compl- you know uh, there's no contemplation. He wanted it to be he wanted it to be sex sexy and modern and and rock. So that's what I did. And he helped me through a lot of things that were quite complicated, like the song that I wrote for Kate, my daughter, and he put it onto music that was really rather like Kurt Weill, that, that wonderful um, German composer yes. who used to write for Lottie Linnea. And so it was a bit like the Trepney Opera. And suddenly that was quite right. And he, he, in fact, was a wonderful person to work with because he egged me on to be more and more dangerous and to be more and more on the edge and to, and to show my cards
1: a lot. Well you mentioned you mentioned the the, the song about uh, your da- your daughter um, who Kate, sadly yes. died Kate in in 2013. Uh, what prompted you I suppose that you know you are a writer so the thing to do with emotions is to channel them but what prompted you to write the song and and was it was it hard to do it as a, as a no, song as a- it
2: wasn't hard at all i asked my agent to ring up Etienne who 20 years before said why not make a musical of the play I'd written called Sorry Were You Asleep? And so uh, I said, Can you ring him up and find out if he's still interested after twenty years? Because perhaps he's gone on to something else. And rather a ball. <laughs> anyhow, he was interested. So I hopped into a, into a taxi and got round to his place pretty quick, and uh, and I showed him what was in my you know in my agenda mm. where I'd written. Uh, the little song on the cemetery the, the the about rushing in as a as a as a gardener who doesn't want to who doesn't want to hang around yeah. and to leave that cemetery as fast as possible and to hate the thick walls uh, that and and Kate jumping into the void and i gave him both he helped me with both and uh, because it didn't see, it seemed weird to write a whole album that was going to be very personal about not being able to sleep at night and uh, in fact the play Oh Pardon Tu and it, that I made a film of as well, and yet not mention the most important and the most tragic thing that had happened in not only my life but in my other daughter's lives mm. as well, which was Kate dying. So. Uh, I gave him those two first and felt that once we'd done those two, we could go back to Oh Pardon to Dorme and even a rather funny song about not being, being able to say uh, F-R-U-I-T yeah. and things like that. All, all that I could do afterwards, but I had to write about Kate first because it comes into every thought in every day as, as everyone knows. It's, you know, it, I don't say that to, to be sad. It's just when you see a flower, you see suddenly peonies are coming out now and you think, oh, so it's is in the graveyard now, is it? And then when, when I saw the Mimosa, I thought, oh, it's, it's Mimosa's time in the graveyard then now. I mean, a- anything, anything you see, if you go up a staircase too fast and you see the void and you hold onto to the banister, it's because you think of her. And how, how, how could she have done it?
1: I mean, how frightening. You you come across in this in this album and and also sort of reading about your life and things of this extraordinary kind of contrasting mixture of fragility and resilience. You know, <laughs> I suppose that we're all made up of opposing factors, but those two seem to be incredibly present. And um, in a way, the songs about your daughter bring them to mind as well, because there's this awful longing sadness. You know that that any parent who loses a child. I mean, it's the worst thing that can possibly happen, isn't it? And yet... You- it is, but it's, it's probably worse for... It, prob- it was probably worse for her son. And all the time, it was
2: so um, frightening. I, 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 I had to think of him. And so you have to think of somebody else, usually. Mm. I didn't think enough of Kate and... Char- I didn't think en- enough of Charlotte and Lou. And they reproached me for it a little after, because I was so much into my own thing of looking after Roman, but also just staying in my bedroom looking at the Saudi wallpaper for nearly two years. And with my best friend Gabrielle going off and seeing anything. We used to see three, four films a day. And when I saw films like Manchester by the Sea, Mm -hmm. you realize that people have destinies that are far more tragic and you feel other people's stories are so much more interesting than your own or as interesting and certainly more moving or as moving and i always find that the cinema or the theater or possibly a concert but in my case it was just going to see movies nonstop and 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 time went past mm-hmm. and uh, but, but there wasn't any resilience uh, and i wasn't very I didn't think of enough of the people around me I should have done. I think it's very it,
1: hard in, in, in that situation to get every single response right, though, isn't it? Because It you, just like,
2: meant that, as it was a very well-known affair, mm. it meant that everyone in the street came up in a sweet way, I mean bakers, and people in shops came and flung their arms around you. And, and it was so kind, but it just meant you couldn't go anywhere there was mm. a constant reference to this thing that, that had happened mm. and the and the missing of Kate but I, I knew I'd seen it before because my brother lost his son, mm. Anno so when he was 19 so I'd seen my brother and his wife be and how well they did they managed everything for all the people around them, how generous they'd been and then they started Anno's Africa so it was a an association to make our children in Africa who didn't have didn't have fun and games. They had the, the associations that do food or clothes or useful schooling. But the actual thing of being able to play guitar or walk on a tightrope board to be able to to dance. That's what Anna was able to do, and that's what they wanted to bring to these children in. In Africa, so Anna's Africa was started, so they did things brilliantly
1: did you think did, did you think, think of Jen, other people because you, you and and your brother have clearly i mean have listened to interviews you 've clearly been incredibly close uh, all, all your lives and, and and in particular when you were young, everything seems to have been about you and Andrew kind of against the world, if you will mm. you seem to be very much a sort of survival unit. But do you think that also? I mean, you know, you talked about both of you losing a child. How, how, how important, how helpful, I suppose, was it that you'd experienced something similar? And, and do you think there's a sort of depressive gene in the fact? I mean, what what would have been your thoughts? No, I, ju-
2: I just I just know that I've never seen anything as sad as seeing my brother on his knees in front of. The coffin that his son was in, I went to, I went to Italy, to, to pick him up, and, uh, and I think to be witness to other people's sadness is sometimes far worse than your own sadness, because how how can you help? What can you do? You can just be there, but, but to see that was, was one of the most appalling sights I'd ever seen, mm. and he and his wife managed to think of all their all Anna's school friends, to leave nobody out, to think of their other children, to, it was just, they behaved themselves so beautifully, that uh, that um, if anything, it was an example of, of thinking of other people that they did, and that I didn't do, not that well. But I had my sister and my brother who rushed over to Paris immediately. I mean, I am lucky in that I've had that family core around me forever. So if I've changed flats which I have done now it's to have a it's to have a, a guest room so that I can have my brother his wife and, and my sister and her husband constantly over in Paris and make meals for them and to give them a good time that's that's the, my greatest pleasure in life really and I- my best friend Gabrielle.
1: I don't know, you know, there's actually a lovely line in the promotion for the concert at the Barbican which says, uh, Jane Birkin has always been known as a muse and performer, but here we discover the woman and the artist. And I wonder if you feel, if that's just one of those lines that sort of appears somewhere and, you know, you don't have (laughs) much investment in it. but, but, But in a sense, you know, now you're talking about working with Etienne and before that it was Serge, I mean, a long time before that. You do feel like someone who works best in collaboration and those collaborations are very, very intense. Why, why do you think uh, that is? And and do you feel... Um, I mean, yes. I know as a woman, as I get older, I, I feel stronger, I feel more capable, I feel more it's independent. It's exciting when somebody, when somebody thinks you can do something. I remember the, the wonderful um, theatre
2: director, Annie Castledine, and I did O oh, Parvon Chudomi in English with her and with Corinne Redgrave and she chose me for Women of Troy, and couldn't, couldn't, it, it was a it was a very uh, it was to play Andromache, mm. and so I went to see her at the National Theatre, and she had a little bureau, and uh, she asked me to talk about life in general. So I suppose I talked about Serge and the missing of Serge and the and the importance, and then she suddenly proclaimed, throwing her wonderful. Generous arms open, she said, "You are Andromache," with so, <laughs> so a great big laugh. So I knew that if she thought I was, then I would be, and I was. And when she had me pull on a chariot full of uh, Hector's armor, and my child had to be thrown to the uh, to the to the crowd down at the bottom, I, I felt every bit of um, uh, Andromache because it was Annie Castledine who saw it in me. So. I think that when Etienne wanted to do the thing I wrote, which was O oh, Pardon Chudomi, there was something thrilling about another author, and an author that I admired, what's more, who thought that your words were worthwhile. Had he not suggested it, I would never have done it. Do you think I don't, that, think, do you think, I don't that... think I would have published my diaries had my brother not thought that they were funny and, and rather typical. And had my best friend Gabrielle not fish them out from from the basement and and type them all out. it was other people 's enthusiasm was was the exciting thing
1: and tell me and and tell me about um you know you you, you you've you 've been an iconic uh you know adored star for all of your life, virtually. I mean, you know, you were only 18 when you married the, the James Bond composer, John Barry, and then your mm. 20s, there was your famous creative and romantic um, involvement with Serge Gainsbourg. And, you know, and in a way, you kind of uh, typify that era and also that sort of wonderfully insouciant French, even though you're not French. Um, mm. uh, 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 how does it feel... You know, people say it's a lot harder to grow older as a woman when you've been, you know, celebrated for your, you know, gloriousness in youth. Uh, Do you feel, what do you feel your relationship is with your youthful self? Well, I, I think, if anything, the people
2: that I rather admire are people that have, perhaps the French are very good at it, I don't know. But when I look at the faces, I really want to look into deeply. Then there's Charlotte Rampling, then there's Catherine Deneuve, then there's Fanny Ardant. And all these women are about 70 and they have magical faces and you just want to wallow in it. I just love every bit of them. And, 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 and in, in England, it has long been so. I mean, if, if I could have watched um, Helen Mirren and got gracefully old the way she has, she's managed to go on being so attractive. I think she probably was attractive all the time and she and she never forgot to be attractive i forgot for about 10 years to be attractive in any way i made no effort whatsoever i wore men's clothes no makeup and that became my thing but it was really because i wasn't i wasn't trying to be i wasn't trying to uh, to please anybody and there did, was nobody was that, left
1: to please was it liberating or was it a bad phase would you say those 10 I years i think it was probably
2: quite nice i mean my ma used to say do make an effort. So I could see that she got, it cheesed her off a bit. She just thought I could make the efforts for other people to sometimes change my trousers or occasionally comb my hair. And I just thought, I'm not going to do anything. I mean, they just take it the way it is. And that's the way it was for quite a long time. And it was only because of uh, this this show, Etienne said, I want you to have straight hair. And I want you to look like when in the in 1970 when you sang uh, Jane B, and he gets, he makes me start the show with Jane B. And but but and did you want to look?
1: You. Did you want to look like you did in in 1970, or was the decade no, that you like just described an act of a, a sort of act of defiance in a way? I can understand it as a sort of act of defiance. Going, I had enough of being that me. I, I want to be <laughs> this me now. No, but. Um, afterwards, I have
2: a good plan because I'm doing a play afterwards, so my scissors will be out directly, this this tour is over, I'll cut my hair off to exactly why, the way I like it and I quite like cutting it myself because it, it's, it's, it's something rather thrilling I've got a mirror in in Brittany where you look rather nice, which means that it's pretty tragic because you get the scissors are just close by and you just cut shorter and shorter and shorter until you look like some sort of horse so so I know that it's not particularly a good idea. But, but in this particular show, I wanted to be what Etienne wanted me to be because he chose all the songs and it's, he's like a director.
1: So, but it's interesting hearing you say of what, of that was. Yeah, it's just interesting here hearing you say. You know, I wanted to be what Etienne wanted me to be, and mm. uh, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about the the whole thing about being a muse, and and in a way, it's a word that feels very different in twenty twenty two when we've been through Me Too, and and we've we you know there's there's been a lot more focus on what some of those relationships that seemed perfectly seemed perfectly benign in their time, you know, that, that, that actually a lot of those power dynamics weren't so benign, and actually women were ill-served in in some ways. I wonder how you feel about the, the sort of changing reference to the past.
2: Well, I, I had quite a good time because really when I thought of all the teasing when I was at boarding school and not having much fun with John Barry either, to be honest, I, I mean, people didn't say... You know, oh, you've got no bosoms. We can get over it, sort of thing. But that's the feeling you got was that, well, never mind. Whereas I felt for the one man in France who didn't like bosoms, was afraid of bosoms, and <laughs> back in Woody Allen's film, they would chase him all over the all over Paris. So he pretended that. At least that's what he said to me. He just said that he was scared of bosoms and so low. What should happen? But he's with a girl who, who's been pleased to be looking like a boy all her life. What a joy. But so you... he did Jetein Mononcleu. I cut all my hair off and, uh, and I found myself to be suddenly acceptable. And because I was, and a lot of girls that have equally been through a lot of shit because they didn't have bosoms, then they too said,
1: well, if James can get away with it, then so can we. <laughs> but... So if anything, he started rather a rage. He did indeed. And Jane, I was interested, though, in, in what you were saying about, you know, as a, as a child, as a teenager, you absolutely, you wanted to be a boy. You know, you, mm. you cut your hair, you, you really did not want to be a girl. I wondered in the light of that, I mean, were you really seriously wanting to be a boy? Because, of course, nowadays there's a, a lot of controversy around, you know, trans issues and children being allowed to transition and what age it mm. should happen and, and all of those things. Do you think if that debate had been going on when you were a child or a teenager, Major, you would have considered. I have mm. I don't know because I
2: so wanted to go to the Andrews boarding school that I wore his clothes. And I think to get into that school and to be to have been allowed to be with him, then uh, had I been given an option, perhaps I would have wanted to be a boy. I don't know. I and mean, my mother was rather appalled because she she rather liked shorts and things like that, but she liked rather cute very short black shorts and things like that. And she bought us black jerseys, which was very avant-garde. Whereas I liked sort of khaki scouts things. She thought they were quite horrible. And so I was into all of that, you know, of, of really climbing trees faster than boys and doing Chinese burns faster than boys. And and so there was a whole... And, and not that my brother was even very boyish. I mean, he just he it, it was just a way of sticking to him, I think, probably, that I wanted to be one... And then as it happened, nothing developed anyway. So it meant that at boarding school, uh, other girls would shriek, oh gosh, she's a half caste. there's nothing at the top, and she's half a boy, half a girl. And so all the teasing went on, and I had nothing to prove. I used to look into all the little pedal bins and think, why is nothing starting with me? When when am I going to be able to prove that I'm okay? And uh, when things did happen, which eventually, of course, they do, then... I was so excited. I was with my father who opened Champagne, as fathers often do. And it was a delight to become a girl. And then but at the top of the stairs, when my brother saw me, he said, uh, it's finished. I remember that very clearly. Oh, it's over, he said. And it was because I was wearing a turquoise dress that my mother had made. And so because I'd become a girl, he had said,
1: uh, it's over. But you the closeness of your because what I wanted to ask you was you know you talk very much about you know like I said earlier on actually you you and your brother against the world, why was there such an incredibly strong bond between you? Why did you feel that you had to be such a tight nucleus and was was that the because end I think of it
2: we were, we were nearly twins i mean i'm I'm only a year younger than him, and I was a mistake, so so I think that that we were nearly twins
1: mm.
2: and and then afterwards, anyhow, it was afterwards, uh, so then I would have changed into a boy and then changed into a girl. And then, and then the fun of being in Louis magazine and having the staple in your stomach as, as you spread on the middle page, I just remember thinking, oh, if they could see me now,
1: those girls at boarding school, <laughs> what a chuckle. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.